Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Turn with me in your Old Testaments to the book of Isaiah, chapter 52. One day God put me on a search to look at great text before great text. And then on one on great text after great text. And now he's got me on great chapters before great chapters. Because most of us don't know Isaiah 52, but we know Isaiah 53. And uh, I want to look at chapter 52 because it's preparatory. What may be the greatest chapter in the Bible. Awake, awake, O Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, O Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and the defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust. Rise up. Sit enthroned, O Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. At first, my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately, Assyria has oppressed them. And now what do I have here, declares the Lord? For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule the mock, declares the Lord. And all day long, my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices, together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes, burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Come out from it and be pure, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not leave in haste or go in flight, for the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
We started out the first morning talking about the fact that we as Christians have a great interest in history because it is God's story. The whole thing is, at least it will be clear ultimately that the whole thing is his story. But we as Christian believers have a special interest in a story within that story, which is the story of the bride of God, the bride of Christ, the people of God. We said that it's there that God does his redemptive work, and it is there that you get the key to the whole. And it is there that you find out where the future is. The future was not in Athens or in Rome, it was in Jerusalem and Nazareth. And uh, that's always true. Wherever God is at work, there is where the future is. Now, we moved to Abraham and said God began with a person and a family, and then to Exodus 19 and 20 where he extends that and develops a people. That people that is to be the people within all peoples through whom all the peoples can come to know the God of that people. So uh, salvation was, is, was to be extended to the world through the people of God. The people of God were to be the light to lighten the nations of the earth. So you do not have to wait till the New Testament get the missionary message of Scripture. It is implicit in the biblical text from the opening line. God never had any intention of letting any of his world be lost without uh, something being done to make possible at least their salvation. All salvation is in God. There is no salvation in the people of God, except as God is in the people of God. <laughs> there is no salvation apart from God. And interestingly enough, there is little salvation apart from the people of God. And sometimes we get mixed up and think it's the people of God. But it is not. It is the God who is within the people of God who is the Savior. But it's through the people of God that God has his access to the world that is about us. So he said the purpose of his people was, one, we were to have a special relationship to him. Bob brought it out last night when he said that Jesus called his disciples in Mark, first of all, not to preach, but to be with him. And the most important thing in any Christian worker's life is his prayer life, his relationship to God. If that goes, everything else is form and ceremony, tinkling cymbals and sounding brass. The, all that is redemptive comes out of fellowship, communion, walking with God. Now, uh, we're a special treasure to him. He loves us. And he loves us for who we are, not for what we can do for him. He loves us whether we ever do anything from the world's point of view or not. He loves us, but he calls us to be a kingdom of priests. In that matchless passage in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul speaks and says, the love of Christ constrains us. For we judge that if one died, then all are dead. He died that all of us might live. And then he says that we might live not for ourselves. Do you know the purpose of the cross? It was to save us from hell, of course. It was to save us from eternal judgment. It was to save us from eternal separation from God. But it was also to set me free from the dominion of me. Because my fulfillment is not in me. God is not an angry God who are demanding God who says, I want you to serve me right. Don't live for you. You live for someone else. And that's your judgment. No, that's where our fulfillment is. 
Have you ever looked in a mother's face immediately after delivery of a baby? You know the most beautiful women I've ever seen? Are brides. It's interesting how much more beautiful a girl is the day she gets married than she was before or she is the day after. <laughs> At least that's been my observation. I've stood in front of a whale of a lot of couples being married. You know the only match to it? Is that relaxed joy in the face of a mother who has delivered. Been through incredible trauma. The trauma's past. The joy is here. She has given life to another. I was interested in some of these TV anchor women. There was an article in a national magazine on them. They had established their careers and they'd made their names and now they were around the 40-year-old age and the clock was running down on them. And so some of them decided they didn't want to die without giving birth. And so Mary Alice Williams was quizzed about that. She said, for the first time in my life, I know what joy is and she underlined joy. She said, for the first time I know what fulfillment is. I've been the means of giving life to another. To live for somebody beside me is not a judgment. To live for somebody beside me is deliverance. You see, it's an echo of the Trinity. Do you know how God lives? The Father gives His life to the Son. The Father and the Son give their life to the Spirit. And the Son gives His life to us. Most of our notions of God are dead wrong. Because we think He's demanding. He's offering me fulfillment. I'll never forget the day our last two were born. It was Christmas morning. At about a quarter of nine, Elsa said, this is it. And I said, pack your bag, get your bag. So I took her to the hospital. I then went to preach. I was preaching in a house. I preached for five years with my back to a door facing. That was fun. Had your audience, you know, 45 in this room, 47 in this room. You could pat everyone. Remember your congregation on the head. Keep good touch on them. But anyway, I uh, took her to the hospital and left her and went for the church service. Finished the church service and went back to the hospital. It was about noon. I sat and sat and sat. And all, Elsie always took forever. And they were always born in the middle of the night. So I thought, what a lousy place to spend Christmas Day noon. So I said, I think I'll go home. And about that time, an old nurse came out and said, Mr. Kinlaw, the doctor wants to see you. So I walked down the corridor and bumped into the doctor. He had a quizzical look in his face. He said... Uh, Mr. Kenlaw, I hope you have plenty of bedroom space at your house. I was doing graduate work at Princeton. I was, we were living with my father and mother-in-law who didn't believe anybody should have more than two children. We already had three. And he said, I hope you have plenty of bedroom space in your house. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you have two little girls in there. I said, you are lying. Well, he said, you go see. So I walked in and looked down at Elsie. She was stretched out on one of these rolling tables like a cadaver and here in a bassinet next to her. 
were two babies. It was the first time I had ever seen an unwashed baby. They were a bloody mess. I stared in awe. I'd never seen anything like that before. And Elsie looks up at me, and opening line was, how many? We didn't have the vaguest notion what was coming. I looked at her and said, two. She said, are you sure? I said, yeah, there are two. She said, are they all right? And I looked down at that bloody mess and didn't want to upset her. And I said, well, they look all right. And she said, well, how many did you say? So I lifted my two fingers and held them over her face and said, two. She looked up at me and relaxed and said, isn't that just like the Lord? You ask for one and you get two. What the concept of perfect love, you know, where you love somebody else more than you love yourself. That's not a judgment. That's life. And so he says, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. I want to turn you inside out. That's what the cross is for. It's to set me free, turn me inside out. And then he said, I want you to be a holy people. Now, what does holy mean? We, uh, there are two ways you can define terms. One of them is etymologically. You can go back and find out what the origin of the thing was. And the other one is by usage. Now, there are advantages in, in etymological studies, but etymological studies uh, don't always tell you the whole thing. You see, uh, it's interesting how differently words can be used. But, uh, you know, you, you, you can use words and mean something very differently. Now, etymologically, if you go back to the word used in the Hebrew and in the Greek, uh, the Hebrew word kadash or the Greek word hagiadzo, the basic idea is to be separate. The same thing is true of the Latin equivalent from which we get the word sanctify and uh, sanctification. Separated. And you can define holiness biblically that way, but that's only partially what it means. If you go to the usage of it in the scripture, you will find that it takes on far more than just that notion of separation or even consecration. There is something before you get through with the use of the word biblically that has to do with the character of the person who wears it. Not his status, but his state. Now, much Protestant theology has said we are holy in Christ. And that's our state, status. That's our position. We are holy in Christ. But then scripture indicates that we are to be holy in state as well as status. If I understand scripture. Because there's no way we can be a kingdom of priests with integrity. Because if the life doesn't match the word, the word is not an authentic word. Now I know we need to skate carefully on this ice and walk this line very carefully. But God intended to make us like himself. Not like himself in power or knowledge or wisdom or those things, but make us like himself in the essence of our essential character. To where in some way you are in his image.
morally, ethically. Now, I uh, talking about etymology, let me digress in a second. I remember when uh, I discovered it for the first time that you have to uh, you have to note the usage of a word before you know what it really is intended to mean, how a person uses it. Uh, I remember when I first became aware of the origin of the word nice. Have you ever checked out the origin of the word nice? You know, it means the guy's pleasant, he's agreeable, tasteful, kind, he's proper. But did you know the word nice comes from the Latin word nescire or nescire? A negative ne and scio or co, the word from which we get signs. And an ignorant person is a person who says, I do not know. So a nice person is an ignorant person. He's not going to be any problem. <laughs> he doesn't ask disturbing questions. <laughs> now it's interesting how that word came from. I don't know. To, uh, he's a nice guy. And do you know, it ultimately develops to where it means that you have examined something meticulously and with precision. So it moves from, I don't know, to very detailed knowledge. So when we use words we ought to think through, we ought to check out what they mean. If you'll check the Oxford English Dictionary, the first two definitions in my Oxford English Dictionary of the word nice is foolish, silly, stupid, simple, ignorant, lewd, lascivious, wanton. <laughs> that holiness, that holy bit, means that we're to be separated. And so you get in the Old Testament, it's used that way. It's used of pots, it's used of pans, it's used of garments, it's used of uh, places, it's used of seasons, it's used of days that are separated for holy purposes. But when it talks about God, Yahweh, it's a different thing. It is not just talking about his difference. It is defining his difference. It is defining that difference that Isaiah found when he found himself in his presence. And he said, I'm unclean and I'm in the presence of the Holy One. Now, if you go through the Old Testament, you will find that holy is distinctly Yahweh's word. It is used either exclusively of Yahweh, or it is used of things directly and immediately related to him, like the temple, the tabernacle, like the holy place, the holy of holy places, which was where you got as close to him as you could get. Uh, it is used of the land, the holy land. It is used of Jerusalem, the holy city. Why is it the holy city? It is, in this case, not just because of the character of the people who live in Jerusalem. It's because Yahweh lives there. And wherever he is, there is holiness. Now, I wish we had time to go into it, but it's interesting that the first time we're really told that we're supposed to be holy explicitly uh, was any kind of definition is in that book in the Old Testament that for years I wished hadn't been included, Leviticus. Have you read it recently? And when you read it, did you read it for fun or out of duty? It's a magnificent book. If you'll go back and recapture the period in which it is written. If you look at the 11th chapter of Leviticus, you get uh, this. He has now redeemed his people. He's brought them out of Egyptian bondage. He has adopted them. They're his. He loves them. 
and he is walking with them. He is living in their midst, and he's telling them how he wants them to live. And in chapter 11, we get this passage. He's drawing a line between things that are clean and things that are not, and things that ought to eat and that they ought not to eat. He says, do not make yourselves unclean. Same word that you have in Isaiah. Do not make yourselves unclean uh, by means of these things that are unclean. I am Yahweh your God. Why should you be clean? Why should you be different from the people around you? I am Yahweh your God. Sanctify yourselves. Consecrate yourselves and be holy. Why should you be holy? Because I am holy. Now, the context is a context of cleanness. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that lives or moves on the ground. I am Yahweh who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Because I'm Yahweh who saved you, therefore be holy because I am holy. But a more interesting passage is in chapter 19. And I wish we had an an hour to spend on that, but let me tantalize you with this. Chapter 19, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to the whole shooting match of them, be holy. It's not just for the priests, the Levites. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. You're supposed to be like me. Now, interestingly enough, you have to relate that to Genesis 1 and 2. When he made us, how did he make us? He made us like himself. He made us companionable. I don't know about anybody else, but I'm convinced that when he created Adam, he had the incarnation in mind. And he, had a, he made a creature who was, could I use this kind of language, incarnatable into. He made you and me so he could dwell in us. Not just as the inhabitant, the way Christ is in my heart, but where he could be mixed with a human personality to where Jesus Christ could be one person, God and man. God intended a compatibility between us and him. Made us in his image. And then we shattered it. And the distance came. And we became something very different from what he intended. Now he's called a people back to himself. And he says... I want a fresh star, and I want you in my image. So he said, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Then gets this long list of things you're supposed to do. Each of you must respect his mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbath. I'm the Lord your God. Don't turn to idols or make gods of cast metal for yourselves. I am Yahweh your God. When you sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord, sacrifice it to Yahweh. Sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it, or on the next day anything left over until the third day must be burned up. If any of it's eaten on the third day, it's impure and will not be accepted. Whoever eats it will be held responsible because he's desecrated what is holy to Yahweh. That person must be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor. Leave them for the alien, the foreigner. I'm Yahweh. Take care of the foreigner. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't deceive one another. Don't swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I'm Yahweh. Don't defraud your neighbor or rob him. Don't hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Isn't that interesting? Don't hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. 
It's, there's some fascinating things in here. But do you know the basis for all of these? He says, because I'm holy. And I want you to be holy. Now, do you know what you have implicit within here? You have the Ten Commandments. As well as some ritualistic law. Listen. Each, first, be holy for I am holy. Each of you must respect his father and mother. Remember which commandment I are? He says, uh, you must observe my Sabbaths. There's the fifth and the fourth and all together. Don't turn to idols or make gods of cast metal for yourself. There's the first and the second. When you go on down, he says, don't steal. Don't lie. There's the eighth and the ninth. Uh, do not deceive one another. The ninth one. Don't swear falsely by my name and so profane the name. There's the third one. Now, do you know what the Ten Commandments are? They're to let us know what he's like. And as we said yesterday, there are commands, but they're promises. Because he never asked you to do anything. I remember Joseph's son was in the midst of intense, brutal interrogations. And he was, they were destroying him. So he came into his study, fell on his face on the floor, and cried out, Lord, I can't take any more, they're destroying me. And he said, Kinlaw, I think I heard a voice. Don't think that ever happened to me but three times. But I think I heard a voice that said, Joseph, get up and read the book on the shelf. He said, no problem. The communists had stripped every other book I had except for one. So there was one book on the shelf and it was Abundant Living. E. Stanley Jones. So he said, I pulled it down and opened it and the page said, How to Live Above Your Circumstances. And it was on Jesus facing the cross. That he didn't run from it, he didn't fight it, but he actually embraced it. And Joseph's son said, God, you don't want me to embrace these interrogations and that interrogator, do you? And the Lord said, yes. So Joseph's son said, well, God, if I'm to embrace these interrogations and that interrogator, you've got to do something in my heart you haven't done before. And he said to me very simply, and Ken Law, he did. He set me free. And I walked back into those interrogations embracing both the interrogations and the interrogator. He said it was almost ridiculous, the change in the atmosphere. He said the, day, the week before, I'd been the one in total trauma. He said that next week, it was the chief interrogator that was in trauma. He was beside himself because he'd lost control of me. So he spun on me and said, Joseph, you're stupid. I guess you'll never learn. I guess the best thing to do is just go ahead and kill you. And he said, I found myself saying... I understand. That's your ultimate weapon. When everything else has failed, you can always kill. Well, you know, I have an ultimate weapon. And when you use yours, I get to use mine. The communist said, and what's your ultimate weapon? Well, he said, yours is to kill, mine's to die. He said, and when I die, I'm not worse off. I'm a whale of a lot better off. But he said, you... You know, every tape of every sermon that I've preached is scattered across Romania is going to be sprinkled with my blood and you're going to have a lot more of a mess of a time with me dead than you got with me alive. And the communist said, take him out. A few weeks later, he said, I heard through the grapevine they were saying, Joseph's crazy. 
He wants to be a martyr. We're not stupid. He said, Kenlaw had been pulling every string I could find to save myself, and now I couldn't even talk him into killing me. He said, you know, as the guy said something about that once. When Jesus said, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, he was pointing the way to life. I die to me and come alive to the eternal things, the things that really count. So the Ten Commandments, the magnificent thing is he can bring me to the place where he's first. That's the first commandment. He can bring me to the place where I can see beyond the creation to the uncreated, to the eternal. That's the second commandment. He can bring me to the place where my words represent reality instead of fiction. He can bring me to the place where I know the difference between the sacred and the profane. He can make me a proper son or a proper father. He can make me where I can love even a person who doesn't like me. He can get me to the place where I'm clean sexually. I don't have to live on pornography. I can be free. He can get me to the place where I'm not covetous. You know how unhappy a covetous person is? Deliverance from covetousness is freedom. <laughs> okay. So he is defining his character and he says, this is the way I want you to be. Now, it's interesting that when you come to the last book in the Bible in the last chapter, the final word is God speaks and says, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he that is filthy, unclean, Go back to Isaiah. Go back to Leviticus. He that is unclean, let him be unclean still. He says, and he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And the final word is, and he that is holy, let him be holy still. That's not talking about God. <laughs> I'm never going to be, I'm never going to be perfectly like, I'm going to be a mortal and a fallen mortal. But the blood of Christ can make a fallen mortal clean. Okay. Now, uh, this is the basis of, of ministry. Do you know what has made evangelical Christianity the laughing stock of the secular world in the United States? Unholy preachers. You catch the media, and you talk about evangelical Christianity. You know what their image is? It's instantly. A preacher riding around in his big limousine with a prostitute. We now are a political party in the United States instead of a witness for God. We have sacrificed the opportunity given to us by our own unholiness. Now, all of this is illustrated, you see, in that personal life of Isaiah. He's in the temple. He's part, he belongs to God. But when he gets close enough to God, he senses how much uncleanness is left in him. The seraphim come, puts the coal of fire on him, on his lips, and cleanses him. And then he hears a voice saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And now that he's clean, he becomes the prophet of the Old Testament. So you see, those same elements that you get in Exodus 19, he belongs to, they belong to God. 
they're to be holy, number three. And secondly, they're to be the means of grace to a world. So the minute he gets clean, he hears a voice then. Do you know why there are so few missionaries in our society today? You know, living with students, you learn a whale of a lot about parents. And Elsie and I lived for 20 years with students from maybe the best homes in the United States, evangelical homes, conservative homes, orthodox homes. Do you know when we would talk with young people about what they ought to do with their lives, if we were to say, if you were to do the thing that would please your father and mother the most, what would you do with your life? Instantly they grin, you know, and say, be a lawyer, doctor, educator, businessman, professional person. I got an echo of the value system of our society. You know the one thing I almost we almost never heard or could sense? A kid who would say, oh, if I did the thing that would please my mother and father the most, I'd give my life so a world could be redeemed the way God's son gave his life for, so his father's world could be redeemed. We're a long ways from God, the God of Scripture. Now, I wanted to get to Isaiah 52. That's all preliminary. <laughs> because Isaiah 52 brings into focus what I want to say. You see, what we're saying is that the key to the redemption of the world is in us. I don't want to say that because I don't want that load on me. <laughs> but there it is. And he said he gave the keys of the kingdom to us. And I don't think he gave them to the institutional church. He gave them to the body of Christ. Now I notice in the Old Testament God never told a prophet to start a new Jerusalem. So I respect the institutional church. But I notice in the ninth chapter of Mark that Jesus was remonstrating with his disciples about their personal ambitions. And uh, John said, well, we did one good thing today. And he said, what's that? They said, well, we found a fellow casting out devils in your name, and he's not one of us, so we forbade him. I think sometimes that's a parable of the institutional church. Now that guy, we don't even know his name, and we do know the names of the apostles. But the important thing is where is God? Because the salvation's in him. And there come days when the body has lost him. If you will look at this 52nd chapter, you will notice that there are five characteristics given of the people of God. The first is that they're asleep. Awake, awake, O Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor. The church is asleep. Is that a pretty good picture of the American church? How good a picture is it of some of us? The second thing is we're defiled. 
he says, the uncircumcised and the defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust. Rise up, sit enthroned, O Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck. Now, it's interesting. And when I first read this, I recoiled a little. When he says, the uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Because you see, the word uncircumcised is the word for the Gentile. It's the word for you and me. And there were Jews who interpreted this, that a Gentile should not come into the house of, of God. You will remember that Paul was arrested in the temple, and the major charge was that he brought an uncircumcised person into the temple. But here is a case where what's being said by the uncircumcised is not a physical thing, it is a metaphorical thing. He's saying, you go in the temple, and the people that are in there are just like the people that aren't in there. And the people of God have become just like the world around them. And when the people of God become like the world around them, their power to reach a world that's lost is gone. And their power to give light to people that are in darkness is gone. If scripture is clear on anything, a believer in God is supposed to be different. And you know, when we are, we get incredible opportunities to witness. I thought about two stories, and I thought I'd share them with you. Uh, now, these stories don't say everything, but they say something very interesting. I remember I had the privilege of hiring a young man I was very impressed with. I've been impressed with him ever since. So I checked into his Christian background, his commitment. He was not in scripture, Bible, theology, any of that. He was in a secular position on our faculty. I got to know his father, and I began quizzing about the grandfather because I knew there was long tradition here. So the father said, well, let me tell you the kind of my, man my father was. He said, we owned a good bit of real estate down on the coast, down on an inland waterway. I think it was about two or three miles across. He said, a man called my father one day and he said, I notice you have a slip so that you can put a boat in the water. He said, I have a speedboat that I've been making myself. He said, it's one of these that uh, I want to see if I can break the world speed record. Anyway, you know, these are incredibly expensive things. I suspect the thing cost certainly in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. He said, could I use your slip? He said, I'd be glad to pay you. Christian farmer said, sure. He said, just don't come on Sunday. <laughs> and the guy said, what, what do you mean? Well, he said, I'm a Christian. And he said, I try to keep the Sabbath day holy. And he said, I'm not interested in making money on God's day. I want to give money on God's day. <laughs> so he said, the father said, okay. And one Sunday, the guy, the Sunday, a few weeks later, the guy showed up on Sunday. And so the Christian farmer looked at him and said, I'm sorry, but I told you you could not use it on Sunday. Oh, he said, don't be that way. Do you know how expensive this operation is for me? 
This is my one day to test my boat. And the water here is placid, exactly what I need. Christian farmer said, I'm sorry, I told you. You could not use it on a Sunday. The guy said, if I give you 10,000 bucks, will that make a difference? Just to slide one boat in the water. And the Christian farmer looked back at him and said, no, it won't make a whit of difference. You can't use my slip on God's day. Now I visited that community. <laughs> and I visited the church. I look forward to it. I got to preach in the church that he helped build. And that witness is still there. And do you know what's happening now? There are young people scattered around the world that have been educated and mentored, discipled by the grandson. China, you just keep on. They're scattered. <laughs> Now, when I thought of that, I thought of another story. I uh, had the privilege of getting to know Hudson Armerding, who was the president of Wheaton College for a while. And uh, we had some priceless fellowship. I don't know an educator in the country at that time that I respected more than him. And we got to know his wife. We had them here. Had to do a retreat for our faculty, a commencement address, this kind of thing. So we got to know them. Deeply, genuinely committed. So he told me a story. We were, I don't know how we got into it. But he said, you know, it's interesting, the tests that come. He said, I was finishing my Ph.D. at the University of Chicago in history. And he said, my exam, my big exam day was on a Monday morning at 9 o'clock, 8 o'clock, I think it was. So he said, I was working like fury. And if you've never gone through that program, you don't know the kind of pressure that's on. Everything's hanging, in your life's hanging on that. So he said, I thought, well, I can study on Sunday. And he said, there was an inner little inner voice that said, oh. <laughs> so he said, I debated that thing out and decided, I'd trust God. I would honor him. And I could honor him. I don't think this was ever public knowledge. I think it was private something he told me about his own inner life. So he said, I just decided in my covenantal relationship with Christ, I would honor his day. So he said, I studied till midnight on Saturday night. Closed my books. Got up Monday morning. Went to the University of Chicago and walked in. And sat down in the opening question was what I had spent from 7 until midnight studying on Saturday night. He said, I looked up and said, thank you, Lord. But I knew Hudson Armadale. There was power in his life. There was influence in his life. When he walked in a room, the room was different. That's not because of Hudson Armadale. It's because of the one who dwelt within him and dwelt within him in a, in a fullness. It made a difference. There's, there are people all around the world that have been influenced by that man. Now, he says, Jerusalem, you've come to the place where there's no difference between a Jew and a non-Jew. 
You've come to the place where there's no difference between a Jew and, and a Gentile. Now he says, you're asleep, you're defiled, and he says, you're bound. You need to get your chains off. He says, you're forgetful, so you don't know who you are. You've forgotten your past, like what uh, we heard about, about we've forgotten our hymns and our traditions. And he says, you're empty. Because he says, I have departed from Jerusalem. Do you remember when Jesus came in the temple in John 2 and then at the, at the beginning of his ministry and then at the end? And he walked through the temple and he cleaned it. And he said, my father's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations and you've made it a den of thieves. He referred to two passages of scripture. One of them was Isaiah 54 and the other was Jeremiah 7. And do you know what Jeremiah 7 is? Jeremiah had stood in the same place in that temple and said, the temple, the temple of the Lord, the temple, don't ever let me hear you say it again because this place will be like Shiloh. You remember what Shiloh was? Shiloh was the place where they pitched the tabernacle when they got into Canaan. And then they turned their backs on God and the Philistines captured Shiloh and took the ark. And Shiloh was in ruins when Jeremiah stood in the temple and said, that's the way this will be. And Jesus stood in that temple and said, that's the way this will be. And 40 years later, the Romans came and pulled stone from stone and there's never been a temple there since. When sin comes, he goes. Unless you turn. But when we turn, do you know what happens? We're awakened. We come alive. We're cleansed. We're liberated. He puts us in touch with our that tradition, that history within the history, and he comes back. And when he comes back, he lays bare his holy arm in the sight of all nations. And all the ends of the earth see the salvation of God when God's people get revived. Do you know where to start to get the world, to reach the world for Christ? The place for me to start right here. And you know the place for you to start? Same place. When we're supposed, what we're supposed to be, the world will see him. Now that's the reason you cannot pit revivalism against evangelism. Because revival is the first stage in evangelism. The evangelism of the church grew out of Pentecost. And Peter said about that experience, God who knows our hearts put no difference between us and the Gentiles. He purified our hearts by faith, made us clean. And then the world began to hear. Now it's interesting. 
Just let me read this line. Depart, depart, go out. Touch no unclean thing. Come out from it and be pure, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. If you're to be a kingdom of priests, to carry the vessels of the Lord, we need to be pure. And he says, but you don't need to go in haste or in flight, for Yahweh will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And he says, see my servant. And the next thing is Isaiah 53. And you know where it is? It's a man who lives for somebody else. It's a person who lives for somebody else. Now it's interesting, there are some scholars who interpret Isaiah 53 collectively as applying to Israel. Well, you can take Exodus 19 I may, and some other passage and build a case for it. Because God says you can't separate Christ from his people. And if you separate his people from him, then they're not that. But when they come together, all the nations of the earth will see the salvation of God. Puts a pretty good load on us, doesn't it? It backs us up to him because he has an amazing grace to give us for the opportunities that he's put in front of us.